You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. In the year 1780, the American and British armies were in the fierce struggle known as the Revolutionary War. There was one brigadier general of the Continental Army who had brilliantly defeated the British on several different occasions. He was well-liked by George Washington himself, so much so that he was likely to be given the fort at West Point, New York. He was fully trusted by Washington and had been severely wounded in defending his own land on several occasions. And all that made his betrayal all the more shocking when in July of 1780, it was discovered that General Benedict Arnold had offered to give the fort over into British hands for the sum of 20,000 pounds. His treason was shocking, so shocking that his name was very quickly became a byword for treason and betrayal. And that's why even 200 years later, if you paid attention in history class, when I said the name Benedict Arnold, you probably thought traitor or betrayal. You know, there's nothing quite as dramatic or unsettling as a good old-fashioned betrayal. For someone who had seemingly shown complete devotion to a cause to all of a sudden completely abandon it. And the more righteous the cause, the more vile the treason. That's why there's no more betrayal, more famous or infamous than that of Judas Iscariot. Benedict Arnold gained a name for himself by betraying his own country and his countrymen. But Judas sealed his place in history by betraying the Son of God. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the tipping point in Judas's story. We're going to be looking at the tipping point, and we'll see the moment of no return. But at the same time, even in the midst of that, we'll see the sovereign hand of God at work and the resolve of Jesus to see his mission through. So I'd invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13 in your Bibles. John 13, and we'll be picking up back in verse 18, where we left off last week. And as you're turning there, I'll remind you how we got here. This is the Last Supper. This is the private meal that Jesus shared with his disciples the night before he was crucified. And Jesus began their time together by washing the disciples' feet. He did something that was reserved for the lowest of the lowest servants. And in so doing, he foreshadowed the spiritual cleansing that he would soon make possible through the cross. But He alludes to the fact that not all of the disciples are clean. He tells Peter, you are clean, but he says, but not every one of you. There's one that's not, and he expounds on that here in verse 18. So let's read beginning in John 13, 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. All throughout the passages we'll look at today, we have this intermingling of betrayal and love and purpose. Jesus says, I'm speak, I am not speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen, Now, this doesn't mean that Judas wasn't chosen. Judas was chosen, as we see. He's one of the chosen 12 disciples, but we find that he was chosen for a specific reason. He was chosen, according to Jesus, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. 
Jesus quotes a line from Psalm 41 there. It's a psalm of David that turns out to be a messianic psalm. In, in that psalm, David is crying out because, because someone near to him, considered a close friend, has completely betrayed him. And Jesus applies this line prophetically to Judas. He's sitting there sharing a meal with Jesus, but will soon betray him. But don't feel sorry for Jesus. Jesus isn't a hapless victim here. He hasn't been conned by Judas at all. In verse 19, he tells the disciples, he's telling them, telling them this now so that when it happens afterward, they will believe. He says that I am he. Now, what does he mean by I am he? Again, Jesus is using that I am phrase. We've seen it in the I am statement so far, and it's that phrase that originated way back in the book of Exodus when God introduces himself to Moses as the I am. In other words, I have chosen Judas in order to fulfill this prophecy. I have always known exactly what he'll do, and I'm telling you this now, so then when it's all over and it's all done, you won't think that this was all just an accident or one colossal failure that, that I failed, but it was actually part of God's plan. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's preparing them for the darkest moment of their life. And we find that his preparation does work. Later, between his burial and resurrection, where do we find the disciples? They're actually all still together. They're hiding, but they're still together. They haven't all scattered and abandoned one another because Jesus prepared them out of love. And now let's pick back up in verse 21. Here's what it says. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I'll give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to them. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give some money to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So let's, get, let's try to picture this scene first. And if, if you're picturing da Vinci's famous Last Supper picture, throw it out, because it's not completely accurate. It takes a little bit of research to understand how this dinner would have been set up, but it's important to be able to picture it to see what's happening here. This is first century Jerusalem, uh, very heavily influenced by the Roman Empire, which controls everything at the time. And so for a, an occasion like this, there would likely be three tables, kind of in a U-shaped. Three tables, very low tables, surrounded by cushions, and, and those at the tables would be laid down, kind of reclining, propped up on their left elbow or arm, holding themselves up that way, eating with the right hand. And the middle seat of the middle table was reserved for the host, or whoever was the most important one hosting the meal. In this case, of course, would be Jesus. He is their rabbi. He is their master. And it mentions one disciple referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved leans back against him to ask a question. So that means the disciple must be to the right side of Jesus if he's leaning back to him to ask him a question. But most scholars would say then 
that if Jesus could so easily hand a piece of bread to Judas, then Judas must be on Jesus' left, which is interesting because the left side of the host was considered the seat of honor or was reserved for an honored guest at the time. And so keep this picture in your mind of the disciples crowded around three low low tables and Jesus at the head table with Judas on his left in the seat of honor. And it tells us that Jesus was troubled in spirit, similar to how he felt at the tomb of Lazarus. He would have been visibly and noticeably upset and bothered. And he declares, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is not what they would have expected. It was shocking enough to have Jesus wash their feet, but then for him to tell them, announce to them, one of you is going to betray me. This is completely unexpected. And verse 22 tells us that they had no idea who it was. They were uncertain who he was talking about. They didn't have a clue. They've all been following around Jesus for for three whole years almost, and apparently all of them had shown to be completely devoted to Jesus. No one suspected that it was Judas, and this should be a clear warning for us here today. Judas had played the part perfectly. We have such a colored view of Judas because we know the story. We know what Judas ends up doing. But the fact that the disciples had no idea who Jesus was talking about, they weren't saying, yeah, I bet it's, I bet it's Judas. They, they weren't saying that. They had no idea. And so two warnings for us from Judas's example. Two warnings. First, that proximity does not equal relationship. Proximity does not equal relationship. Judas held a privileged position that only 11 other men in the entire world shared. They were the chosen 12 that that were able to walk with Jesus for three whole years. Judas shared hundreds and hundreds of meals with Jesus. He had a front row view to countless miracles and healing, seeing the glory of God on display. Yet in the end, he had no relationship with Jesus. Proximity does not equal relationship. Coming to church does not make you a Christian. Being in a room full of Christians, like right now, doesn't make you one. Your parents' faith can't save you. It's great if you have parents or grandparents who are great godly influences, but coming from a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. Proximity to Christian things and Christian people can't make you a Christian. Then the second warning is that duty does not equal a relationship. Duty does not equal a relationship. Again, no one suspected Judas at all. That means that he was fully engaged in the ministry just like all the other disciples were. He was caring for the poor, assisting Jesus in the ministry, passing out the bread and fish as Jesus multiplied and fed the 5,000. Judas, in fact, was in charge of the money bag for the disciples. He was the one always buying the supplies and getting what they needed. And when I think of that, I think of Jesus' words from Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Who qualifies for that warning more than Judas does. You know, coming to church every Sunday can't save you. Singing worship songs doesn't save you. Giving money doesn't save you. Going on a mission trip doesn't save you. 
being baptized doesn't save you. And according to Jesus, apparently, even if you could walk up to a demon-possessed person and cast out that demon in the name of Jesus, it would not prove that you're a Christian. All it would prove is that there's power in the name of Jesus. Duty does not equal relationship. And without a relationship, there is no salvation. I wish every single person, every single Christian could understand the weight of this truth. When I was in youth ministry, I did a whole teaching series entitled, I Never Knew You. It wasn't very subtle, but I wanted those teenagers to realize that you could grow up in church, do all the Christian things, and act like a good Christian, and go straight to hell. And I'm worried that too many of our churches, our teachers, our preachers, our parents have coddled the next generation into thinking that, that as long as they had a prayer that they prayed, or they walked the aisle one day long ago, then, then that they're safe, that they got their fire insurance. And I'm worried that through a combination of cultural Christianity and easy believism that we've led people to think that as long as you're generally a good person and come to church every once in a while, put some money in the plate and, and vote Republican, then you have nothing to worry about. When in reality, they have everything to worry about. They're in danger of eternal condemnation. Don't just play the part. Proximity and duty can't save you. Only Jesus can save you, and it's personal. It's a personal relationship through believing that he is the Son of God, that he lived the perfect life that we never could and then gave his life on the cross for our sins, and that on the third day he was raised victorious over death, hell, and the grave. That's the warning we have of don't be a Judas. You know, the disciples have no clue who he's talking about. They would have been shocked. Even Peter, who's normally the one that, that doesn't hesitate to speak up, he, he doesn't even say anything. Like, they're probably scared. They don't know if they are the one who may betray him. But he does motion to the disciple on Jesus' right hand and saying, hey, you know, ask him, ask him, who is it? And this is the first time in John's gospel that it refers to the disciple whom Jesus loved. It sounds kind of vague, but most scholars agree this is likely John referring to himself. And we'll see that reference a couple more times as we go forward. So Peter motions then to John, who's next to Jesus, to ask him, who's the one you're talking about? They, they got to know who's the one. And Jesus tells him that it's the one to whom I give this morsel of bread when I dip it in the dish. And he takes a piece of bread, he dips it in the dish, and then gives it to Judas. Now something I discovered in my study time was that it was customary in those times for a host to sometimes pick out a particularly tasty piece of, of meat or piece of food and present it to another guest as a sign of special honor or, or friendship. So Jesus is performing this action as he dips the bread and hands it to Judas. So think for a moment about this significance. Jesus has already washed the feet of this man, the man who would betray him. And even now he's placed him in the seat of honor and is extending his love to him even though he knows what's to come. This is the love and compassion of our Lord and Savior. The reason he's deeply troubled in spirit is over the soul of this lost disciple, this man who's marching towards destruction. And it's almost as if this is the precipice of decision right here. One last chance for Judas to turn away from darkness and to embrace his Savior. This is the point of no return. 
But unfortunately for Judas, he continues in his wickedness. And verse 27 says that when he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. He had completely given himself over to his sinful desires. And now Satan possesses him to carry out the terrible betrayal. And Jesus tells Judas to leave and go do what he plans to do. It appears that Jesus had said this quietly to John or answered John quietly because no one else knew why Judas had left. They still think because he has the money that Jesus sent him out to go buy some more food or give money to the poor. And the sad thing is the next time they see Judas will be with an angry mob in the garden to arrest Jesus. But then notice how verse 30 ends. It says, and it was night. John doesn't waste words in his gospel account. This statement is more than just an observation of time. There's a theology behind this as well. It was night. This is the time when people would eat a supper like this, but it was also night, the time when darkness reigns. And in particular, this is the night when darkness would be at its full power. Judas has been completely swallowed up in darkness. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus refers to those who, are, who reject God as being cast out and thrown out into utter darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Judas now is in complete darkness. He's gone his own way, but this is also the night of darkness for Jesus. This is the, the hour of, of Satan's power and evil, and it will be carried out through to the crucifixion. See, this is a heavy moment. Judas has crossed the line and sealed his fate. He'll betray the Son of God. But even in the midst of this wicked treason and abandonment, we all of a sudden have this stark contrast in Jesus' response in verse 31. So let's pick back up there in John 13, 31. It says, When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while and I am with you. You'll seek me and just as I said to, Jesus, to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you, love, if you have love for one another. Judas is now left to carry out his task. It's the last hour, it's the last barrier for Jesus' hour to finally come, and Jesus knows it. Now is his moment of glory. That's the sovereign plan of God on display, that the greatest moment of seeming victory for Satan would actually be used by God to accomplish the most glorious act the world has ever known. That Jesus, the Son of Man, will be glorified through his suffering on the cross. And we have a reminder of the perfect relationship shared between the Father and the Son. Where the Son perfectly obeys the Father, and in so doing brings the Father glory. But the Father being glorified also brings glory to the Son. And it's because their purpose is completely unified. And Jesus prepares his disciples for what's to come. Telling them that he'll be with them for a little while longer but then he's got to go somewhere that they can't go. He's going somewhere they can't go in order to do something they can't do. Jesus' appointment on the cross is something that he alone can bear. No one else can atone for sins with their life like Jesus can. His perfect life alone is the adequate sacrifice. 
He alone can pay the terrible price for our freedom. Now that Jesus has told them he'll be leaving them, he then gives them a command in regard to how they should live while he's away. How they should act. And he says, love one another just as I have loved you. And you also are to love one another. I love how theologian Don Carson, in speaking of this command, he points out, this new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate Profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. It's a simple command. I could explain this to to my children, to my toddlers, but yet I I can't follow it perfectly. No one can follow it perfectly. And now to be honest, it's not a completely new command. Even in the Old Testament, the Israelites were commanded to to love people and to, to do no harm to their neighbors The newness of Jesus' command instead rests on two factors, the standard and the effect. The standard and the effect. First, the standard. Jesus doesn't say just love one another. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Now, that completely changes things. It's, It's not up to me to decide if I've loved someone adequately or not. I don't get to arbitrarily set the standard for what love is. And I also can't compare myself to other people because they aren't the standard either for how I should love someone. Instead, Jesus sets himself up as the standard. And what does Jesus's love look like? Well, what we've seen just in the last chapter, he's washed their feet. He has served them with complete humility and meekness. But the disciples haven't even yet experienced the extent of his love. As verse 1 told us last week, he loved them to the end. Jesus would love them so much that he would give his life for them. See, Jesus sets the standard for radical, selfless, unconditional love. So this commandment is new in its standard, and it's also new in its effect. He says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples, Think for a moment of all the different things that Jesus could have said there. He, he could have said, all people will know you're my disciples by your commitment to church. All people will know you're my disciples by how many Bible verses you can recite. Or all people will know you're my disciples by how much money you give. But he didn't say any of those things. None of that is too impressive to the world around us. After all, people are just as fanatic and committed to their sports teams They can memorize hundreds or thousands of their favorite songs, and it's actually hip these days to give money to charities. So none of that's too impressive to the world around us. Sometimes the world does it better. No, Jesus says the proof, the evidence to the world around us that you're truly my followers is how you love one another. And that's because this is no normal love. It's a love based on the standard of Jesus. It's a love that's intended to be a reflection and imitation of the perfect love shared between the Father and the Son. It's a love that's completely foreign to this world. Love in our culture is reciprocal. I love you in return for something else. I will show you love because you showed me love. But once you stop loving me, then I'll stop loving you. It's fickle and it's fleeting, but God's love, on the other hand, is covenantal. I'm going to love you whether or not you hold up your end of the bargain. See, that's love that the world can't understand. It's not transactional. It's a love empowered by the Holy Spirit based upon the truth of the gospel. 
And it's a love that transcends race, ethnicity, economics, gender, politics. It's a love that says, I'm going to love you because I love Jesus and Jesus loves me. And that's the calling card for us as believers. See how the love of Jesus outshines the darkness. He knows that by the end of his night, by the end of this night, every, one of his own disciples will have betrayed him and will have given him over to be arrested. And the next morning, he'll be crucified on a Roman cross. Yet here he is talking about glorifying God and loving one another. And before Judas leaves, he's still showing Judas kindness and love, even up to the very final moment. And it's because the darkness won't win. It's because the darkness can't win. What did John tell us way back in his prologue? In John 1.4, he said, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light of the world overcomes the darkness. Where he shines, the darkness has to flee. And that commandment to love one another wasn't just for those 11 disciples who remained. It was from, for anyone who would call themselves or profess to be a follower of Christ. And it's still our love that is the greatest testimony to the world around us. This will be our clearest ID card as a Christian. And it's, it's that love that reflects the light of our Savior and expels the darkness from our homes, from our schools, from our businesses, from our workplaces, from our community. And so let us love because he first loved us. Would you pray with me?